Hey everyone, this is Sina with another episode of Into the Bytecode. My guests today are Rebecca Reddig and Michael Mosier. Rebecca is the Chief Legal and Policy Officer at Polygon Labs, and before that held the same role at Aave. And Michael is the co-founder of Arcturos, a legal boutique, and a partner at Ex-Ante, a venture capital firm. Before this, he was the general counsel at Espresso Systems, worked in the Treasury Department, the Justice Department, and even spent some time in the White House. So they both really know what they're talking about when it comes to policy and regulation. The topic of our conversation today was a new paper they've written together called Genuine DeFi as Critical Infrastructure. And in it, they articulate a regulatory framework for DeFi and smart contracts more broadly. Now, I wanted to have this conversation with them because one, what they share makes a lot of sense to me. It's grounded in the technology and preserves important invariants like base layer neutrality. And two, I think it's a really helpful perspective to have as a builder working on something new in this space. So with that, I hope you enjoy and I'll leave you to it. Into the Bytecode is sponsored by Privy. One of the biggest problems we're grappling with as builders working on crypto-enabled applications is how to make the right trade-offs between user experience on the one hand and security and privacy on the other hand. How do we promote self-custody and ownership while letting the application shine rather than the crypto behind it? So Privy plays an important role here. They provide simple onboarding so anyone can connect to your app easily by allowing them to sign in with an existing wallet or by making it easy for you to provision a new self-custodial wallet for them, linking to social logins like Google, Twitter, or Discord. I personally have faith in Privy because of the team. Henry Stern, who's one of the co-founders, was previously on an episode of this podcast, so you can listen to that conversation for more of a deep dive. And he and his partner, Asta Lee, have been thinking about data privacy and security for a long, long time. And you can see this in the level of thought they're putting into the product. So if you're working on a new product and thinking about how to reach a wider group of users without compromising on either user experience or privacy and security, then I encourage you to check out Privy at privy.io. Okay, well, maybe by way of getting started, I, I asked a few folks who, who know both of you what might be interesting topics to get into. Ooh. And Zoe, who's Michael's partner at Ex-Ante, said that you both have pretty interesting backgrounds. So maybe as a way of just getting into this conversation, you can share, you know, what what she she means by that and, you know, how you got to know each other and and what you've been up to to this point. Yeah. I mean, Michael's background is so much cooler and more impressive. So it's so hard to know if I should go first or second. So I'll just go first. Um, so I actually come from like a very traditional white shoe law firm in New York where I was doing litigation and regulatory enforcement work, mostly in the financial services space. But I also worked on one of the very early peer to peer file sharing cases in the music industry, just to age myself a little bit. Um, and that's where I first really got introduced to this um, odd intersection between law and novel technology systems. Um, we we had to look at and think about where would liability even attach in a peer-to-peer -peer system. So it's it really actually has a lot of applications to what we think about with DeFi and the permissionless blockchain systems we're dealing with today. Um, 
and I'll bypass a lot of the sort of background, but back when I uh, was clerking in the Southern District of New York, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal about Bitcoin and Mt. Gox in about 2013, and I was like, this is so cool. And I went back to a firm after my clerkship, um, but kept staying interested. And then um, after I did like my seventh or eighth trial uh, and was away from my family for a long time, I was like, I want to be an entrepreneurial lawyer. I don't even know Mm. if that's like a thing. Uh, And so I went to a small boutique and really started doing and focusing on um, work in the blockchain space. I did a really, really early arbitration uh, between one of the big exchanges that we still know today as a big exchange um, and some um, ETH whales because early on, back in like 2017, there were all these incentives to bring liquidity to exchanges because they were still very new um, and they were changing their terms and, you know, the whales were doing all these interesting trades with bots, which exchanges didn't really uh, anticipate. So that was sort of my first big private case. Um, And then I did founder disputes. And then after a while, and I'll wrap it up. I know this is a little long. um, No, this is is great. Take your time. uh, um, like I, I, there's been multiple places where I'm like, what, what did the ETH whales do? But, but oh, it's fine. We can keep going. Yeah, that's a, fu- <laughs> that's actually a very fun story. Um, uh, so anyway, uh, the other interesting is thing is the judge I was clerking for at the time, maybe a few months after I had started getting into Bitcoin and learning about it. Uh, actually ended up having the Silk Road case assigned to her, oh, uh, wow. the very early one. So it was a very strange confluence of like my own personal interests and sort of real life coming to pass. But I left before the trial happened. I went back to a firm. But anyway, so because I had been really doing the work, um, I started working with software developers in, we didn't even call it DeFi then. We kind of were like joking around, like, do we call it open finance? Like, obviously open finance means something a little different today. Um, and so worked with companies that we now think of as like DeFi staples, Uniswap Labs, Compound Labs, very, very early when they were like four to 10 employees, Um, Mm. just thinking about and doing regulatory analyses around these permissionless systems and what attaches and where, but across all the different types of laws, this was back in maybe 2019 or something, across all the different types of laws we think about today, like do securities laws apply? Do commodities laws apply? Uh, Does money transmission apply? Does like we just sort of we do bit license, you know, do you need to get a bit license? We just looked at everything. Um, And then because, you know, DeFi became a thing right around that time, uh, we started getting more and more clients. And then I went in-house to a big DeFi software development company uh, and then started unofficially doing policy work then because I had done all this work to figure out technology, how the tech works, and then think about the laws and where they may come together. Uh, And then I've been at Polygon for the last year and change. Michael's is way cooler, though. Like, way cooler. Not at all. I mean... Let's dig into Rebecca. That was there's some no, awesome stories just, in there. Oh, good. Just to just to put like a fine point on Michael's uh, when I was looking at his um, testimony for uh, the the hearing that just happened, I read his background and made a little comment and wrote weak. So <laughs> <laughs> just to, I mean his so go Michael. It's really good. all right. Let's do it. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, no. So while Rebecca was doing real lawyering, I was sort of um, coming up through the the public service side of things, um, and actually started at the DA's office in Manhattan, um, and and from there just realized that I really was interested in this sort of countering exploitation theme. Like I, I had. I just I originally been at a law firm and done some uh, work with domestic violence victims getting protective orders, but 
it just wasn't sort of enough. Like you get a piece of paper and then, you know, things would still happen. And so went to the DA's office in Manhattan. Um, and after a while of doing trials there, it was sort of felt like moving sand at the beach. You just, you come back, you do another trial, you come back and do another trial. Mm -hmm. And so moved a bit towards the macro space and went to treasury at the office of foreign assets control. Um, ultimately was the, the head of policy, there and and then ahead of in compliance and enforcement but a lot of the policy work that i was doing when i was there was um also around sort of the iran deal and trying to figure out if the goal here is behavior change not punishment which is a very different process including the case building process which is very very different um how do we also incentivize um not just incentivize but like empower human rights activists like in iran to be able to get censorship resistant technology like VPNs. Uh, and so there are general licenses out there like D1 and D2 um, that are specifically based on, yes, there's sanctions on involving the Iranian government, but we specifically want you to be able to get censorship resistant technology to human rights defenders in Iran. Like that is very much the, fo the foreign policy goal is not punishment. The foreign policy goal is behavior change uh, and supporting mm -hmm. democracy and human rights. And so that was, it was sort of both sides of that. Um, and then uh, was at the Department of Justice uh, and did some of the early kleptocracy cases where we were looking at investigating foreign corruption. A lot of times I uh, worked on like the Equatorial Guinea case. This is the son of the president of Equatorial Guinea who makes $20,000 a year, also happened to have a like $200 million mansion in Malibu, <laughs> um, wow. uh, a place in Paris, about like 12 Maseratis in, in Paris as well. Um, so at, while they have like a 70% illiteracy rate and, and books are largely banned. Um, so, wow. you know, just some, and, and like he, he was the, the forest ministry minister because minister, the, the forestry is their big export. And so he got like all these tariffs from, from that. So that sort of corruption piece of it, but then also working through how do you get these assets back to the people in Equatorial Guinea and civil society that might also further the sort of humanitarian pro-democracy goals. Cause again, it's not just about punishment. Um, in fact, actually in the mansion, I think he had Michael Jackson's thriller jacket uh, and the sequin glove. Wow. So there was a whole, there's a whole process for HSI to come in with cameras because if something gets damaged while they're uh, seizing assets, they can be in trouble for it. Um, so that's a whole nother, uh, interesting aspect of it and then how you sell this that does stuff sound like back. entrepreneurial regulatory work i mean <laughs> yeah. anytime michael yeah. jackson's thriller jacket is involved uh that sounds like good fun <laughs> <laughs> exactly so um, we should just do the entire episode on michael's background no, 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 no. <laughs> i just want to hear all these stories no, no. Know, yeah just um, sitting around the fire and hearing the stories <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, and then spent some time at the White House and the National Security Council. And one of the things we did was um, was also Casual. looking at early cyber attacks on financial infrastructure. And so one of the, the things that I worked on was the first executive order um, for OFAC sanctions related to cyber intrusions on the financial infrastructure. And again, we built in lots of protections to that, working with the White Hat community to make sure that people didn't feel stifled because you can't have researchers feeling like, well, wait, if I'm pen testing and doing research, am I now gonna be violating sanctions in some form or, or have some other enforcement? Um, which ties into something that Rebecca can talk about later with this, the Security Alliance and, and SEAL initiative that has all sorts of protections for white hat folks as well. Um, but that's been sort of in the space of, of thinking through 
there's a punishment, there's a behavior change, but there's also an empowerment piece of this. I'll cut through the FinCEN stuff. Like I went to FinCEN, which is the financial intelligence unit and the head of AML um, for the Bank Secrecy Act in the U.S. and uh, ultimately became that the deputy director and then the acting director of that and did several initiatives on like privacy tech and digital identity, again, to like protect people, not just avenge them after they get exploited. Um, mm. I did a detour in the middle of there as the first in-house counsel at Chainalysis, but came back um, in the senior position and then actually was offered to stay as the permanent director, but started, you know, like you seen, I got excited about the tech side of stuff. Once I started learning about zero knowledge proofs, homomorphic encryption from these, these exercises we were doing and initiatives um, and started talking to, to some folks at Espresso system, what's now Espresso systems who were just getting started and getting funding um, building configurable asset privacy for Ethereum um, with zero knowledge proofs and going into like a whatever 10 person organization sounded more fun than than a 600 person one at that point. <laughs> I was just getting too old for that. Uh, so went in and also we'd been talking so much about how it can't just be policy solutions. Like you have to have technical solutions to these problems because the policy mm -hmm. piece is always going to be a bit fickle based on sort of political wins and political will. I mean, I think there's there's various sanctions programs like Cuba that are very complicated, may or may not be successful, but there just isn't a political will to probably do what needs to be done, um, which I think is probably more on the incentive side. But but I think that piece of it is sort of why we're thinking through. It can't just be waiting for policy to solve stuff. We need the technology like zero knowledge proofs to enable privacy, but also an ability for somebody to manage their counterparty risk uh, mm -hmm. in, in a way that's yeah. privacy protecting. So anyway, went out and did that. Um, and then through all that, they eventually set up a legal boutique with some other former prosecutors who were also in-house in Web3 to sort of be agile about the way we help people. And then met Zoe, um, who was building Exanti around um, sort of agentic tech and thinking through democratic and personal resilience, which was very much the work we were doing at Arcturos, this boutique, uh, helping whistleblowers and emerging tech and, and helped Zoe as she was spinning it out and, and then joined her as a partner as it got going to, to also again, be building the tech side of it. Anyway, sorry, I'm really old. That's why it just this goes on forever. This was so cool. I loved it. Also, <laughs> though, it. he it. like low key casual, like, and then I was at the white house for a little bit, just like very casual. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. you're both in deep, so it's <laughs> it's yeah. Uh, Although I was trying to answer the part of your question, like how did we meet? I don't, I don't even know. Do you know? Actually, that's a great question. I don't even know either. At some point, I, I, I don't actually really don't even know. No clue. <laughs> and also, yes. I have to say, like it always seemed like we were very, uh, you know, ideologically aligned, and we've had a lot of discussions. I think over time, just about how to solve a lot of these problems and how to use the tech to solve the policy questions. Um, but I, for me, um, I don't, you don't have to agree, Michael, but I think the process of writing this paper together was very gratifying to see that we really both, I think, are very, very aligned um, mm -hmm. with how to move the space forward productively. Because for me, and I think Mike, like it's very clear from Michael's background, um, it's true too, like 
I kind of just want builders to be able to build. I, mm -hmm. I don't want this to be the focus anymore. Like, you know, I always say like, oh, I'm here for the mission. And I asked myself the other day, like, well, what does what does it mean that we won? Like, what's the mission? And the mission mm -hmm. is to like, it's not regulatory clarity because I don't even really understand what that term means. I think it means so that people can just continue to build and innovate without this being priority number one. Yes, mm -hmm. compliance with laws and being a good actor and building things that are useful and as Michael's saying, will like move the world forward in a positive direction is really important. Uh, so you can't ever denigrate that, but it can't also hinder the way you think about building. So I think like that's for me, totally. that's the mission I'm really here for is to get us to a place where like builders can just keep building and this isn't totally you know this isn't i think so so much of a capture for everyone yeah that makes a lot of sense so yeah we are gonna talk about this paper that you wrote which is about you know kind of sensible effective regulation for you say DeFi, like and i was really thinking about it in terms of smart contracts broadly right Pro protocols yeah. that run on chain without intermediaries um, but maybe before we get into that, and as a way of setting the background, um, can you talk about the kind of current regulatory regime and how you know how it what it was designed to achieve? Because because reading reading the paper that you wrote about the Bank Secrecy Act and you know financial intermediaries and all of this stuff, it it kind of makes sense the system that folks had designed and it it achieves the goals that they have. And my sense is that you're basically saying this is this is like a, a new regime where we can achieve the same goals through different means. Um, but I, you know, as someone who's primarily been an engineer builder, like do doesn't have all of the context. And I think some of the folks listening will be in the same boat. Like, how would you describe, you know, the, the current the current setup, um, how it got to this place, what it's been designed to achieve? Michael, why don't you take this one, given your background? <laughs> Rebecca will give the, she has the answer to this problem. I'll set out the problem. Um, yeah, that so sounds the, great. The, the, <laughs> so, so part of the issue, and, and it's not, I think part of what we were trying to shift the conversation was not even so much, um, it's, it's, it's not quite right as we're applying it to DeFi, it's actually, there is a right answer that's largely out there that probably needs to evolve a little bit, but there is a right answer, but people are talking about it in the totally the wrong way. And so part of it is just shifting the whole conversation over. And and so away from the Bank Secrecy Act, which is for financial institutions, and over to the in financial infrastructure side, which has been addressed in many ways in a more flexible, collaborative way, but really effective. So to your question on, on sort of the existing thinking uh, broadly, where we felt like it was not the, the right fit, the Bank Secrecy Act was very specifically created in, a, in, a, in the 60s and 70s for a situation where you had banks that were completely siloed. There was, at the time, there was no, there was no suspicious activity reporting. There was, there was nothing. I mean, there, there are safety and soundness rules and things like that, but that was about it. Uh, organized crime, in, among other people, were, were sending their money off to Swiss banks. The FBI might be doing an investigation. And in fact, a lot of it was like early tax fraud is like a hook, you know, much like we've seen from sort of the movies. Um, and they would go to a Swiss bank. The Swiss bank would be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Can't really help you. They would go to the bank in the U.S. and say, well, which Swiss bank did this go to or where did it go? And the bank in the U.S. would say, 
I don't know, can't help you. Um, so, because there was no sort of requirement to keep these records uh, on anybody, certainly not to report it. And so the the early the early regime was actually, and this is why they called it the Bank Secrecy Act. It, it was it was not about protecting, you know, keeping the government keeping it secret that they're keeping protect personal information. It was that the banks were literally being so secretive, particularly hmm. as they were going abroad to Swiss banks and others. And so the first part was really just a reporting regime, which was, look, if we come to you, we at least want to know the records that you have when someone when Rebecca sends her money out to the Swiss bank, we at least want to know which bank she sent it to if we come. And then, you know, over time, it sort of grew to, well, actually, we also want you to report it to us if it looks suspicious. Here's what suspicion looks like. You know, here are the thresholds. Um, and so it, it went from reporting or into a reporting regime, again, because it's so siloed and opaque, the the FBI in doing these cases had no way to, to determine what, what was happening. And I think without getting further into all that, that's partly why, you know, as you think through that, it just doesn't make sense in a, in a very on-chain DeFi world. And, and Rebecca can talk about what we mean by genuine DeFi, but I think that it's that genuineness of, of sort of on-chain transactions where okay well it's the siloed piece is not an issue because you can see the public ledger the reporting piece is not an issue because anybody can jump on etherscan and look at things uh let alone if you're using blockchain analytics and and can, can visualize even more so sort of the two biggest issues that the bank secrecy act were addressing just don't apply to hmm. um in, into the DeFi and on-chain world so that's the that's the that's the problem and what we're trying to solve. And we can talk about the infrastructure side after, but let me stop there. And, and so, so that, that makes sense as a, as a thing to ask for in the sixties and the seventies. Right. And so kind of moving to present day, I imagine this sort of regulation makes sense for say fintechs, like, I don't know, like Robinhood or Wealthfront, because, you know, they're, they're still operating on these servers, but in the, in the kind of on-chain context, you get all of this stuff for free. Um, what, um, how has this been applied in the in the crypto ecosystem mm -hmm. so far? Um, what what sorts of issues is it causing? Great, I'll take it. Great question. <laughs> um, so let's split it up into two different parts. Uh, we talk about, you know, the first part of the paper talks about like the financial integrity regime in the United States, which is like the Bank Secrecy Act and all of the follow on legislation that comes from it. Um, and as Michael was saying, you know, the BSA is really documentation, detection, and we put it as deterrence because I thought it sounded cool. But um, I think if they, people would say today it's prevention and not just deterrence. But and then there's the other piece, which is sanctions laws, um, which are, you know, as Michael was saying, like there are just certain countries or certain individuals or certain entities that you cannot transact with because it is one of the tools that the U.S. uses to for behavioral change, as Michael was saying. So, you know, if you're a bad actor, you do not get the privilege of, you know, economic um or trade uh, privileges with the United States or with US persons. So mm -hmm. I think um, sanctions is almost an easier one to take, oddly, uh, because it's such a definitive, it, it's just such a definitive set of laws in, in the United States, um, which is, you know, 
if you're here, you have US persons who are employed by you or whatever, or if you really are facilitating transactions for US persons, you have to comply with sanctions laws. And facilitation um, under US law for the sanctions regime is extremely, extremely broad. So it's been very, I mean, I think there are plenty of ways that we could argue against facilitation, but it's kind of like one of those things, like why? Like why push yourself? Like just do, and in the crypto space, you know, it hasn't been, I think so prohibitive. I think from a ethos perspective, people have not liked having to think about what we do from a sanctions law perspective because there is supposed to be this censorship resistance. But I think um, from a imposing on the tech perspective, as of today, it's been minimal. And a lot of what we've seen is just wallet monitoring through blockchain analytics companies like Chainalysis or TRM Labs or things like that, where if a wallet is on one of these global sanctions lists, whether it be the US, you know, specially designated nationals list, which does have ETH addresses and some Bitcoin addresses and other countries lists, it gets blocked off your front end. There is a whole, we could probably do a whole other podcast about whether that's even appropriate and do the pros and cons, but we'll save that for another time. Um, with respect to the Bank Secrecy Act, people have not known what to do because as you sort of started off this episode talking about, like, this is a, a regime focused on intermediaries and like intermediaries in the midst of transactions that usually take cust you know custody or have control over user assets. And that doesn't exist a lot in the blockchain space. Um, and in most iterations of what we've seen from public permissionless systems, whether it be the underlying network infrastructure or smart contract based systems built on top. And so I think there has been a lot of square peg round holing going on um, with respect to how and who should be complying with the Bank Secrecy Act. So there's been like tons of talk of like, we should just do KYC on front ends. But it's like, well, front ends can take many different forms. Um, a lot of them are just normal websites like we all you know access websites like um twitter or i don't know cnn.com or whatever it may be yeah yeah and so we certainly aren't going to do kyc on that Uh, now other websites or front ends have this thing where there's like an off-chain server and they do matching of your transactions and you know i think we have to parse out the tech for what it does um and then other (laughs) people uh, and including a number of bills that are out there, like those proposed by Senator Warren, wanna make validators and miners financial institutions that like forget KYC, let's just put that to the side. Sure, they'd have to KYC, but they'd have to do like suspicious activity reporting and customer due diligence. And like, if you actually see, and that's why we took time at the beginning of the paper to write out what do you really have to do under the BSA, it does not, it, it is really square peg round hole. Like it just doesn't make sense for what miners and validators do, which as Michael said in front of Congress when he was testifying in this crypto crime, this really good crypto crime hearing, um, like the, it's really like internet service providers and we don't have them do that right now, at least. Uh, and so I don't think we should impose it there. I think the other impetus for the paper is sort of what you're talking about, which is like, okay, well, you guys keep saying there are other alternatives and everyone says there's a tech solution, but nobody's really come out and said what it is. And I look, I think some of the basis for that is because there are just different viewpoints and very strong ones within crypto itself, including on the spectrum of like, everything's censorship resistant and we don't have to think about this because this is entirely different to people who are like, this is the future, we have to regulate it perfectly and it's the only way that it's gonna move forward. And so I think 
Um, and I remember right. vividly thinking to myself and then saying to Michael, like, I'm going to take whatever heat there is for this paper because we have to put something out mm. because government officials were explicit. Like, fine, if you say there's something else, great, but tell us what it is because we, we can't figure it out. So... Um, I think that's right because because with this paper you're at least saying that we we want to find some sensible way to to have AML and and uh, and you know all of these these uh, these ends that we do actually care about and so the we just have to think about where it actually works to do that in the design of the system rather than making every front end comply with that or every validator comply with that. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's right. I, I think the other thing is. Um, the, there needs to be space for the ecosystem to evolve appropriately. And I think the temperature on the AML question had been turned up so high after October 7th and the concept wrongly now, I think we know that Hamas had funded their entire operation using crypto. I mean, the undersecretary of the treasury basically said the Wall Street Journal article, you know, the numbers were overblown. He said it in front of Congress, um, this past week. So we know that the temperature was probably taken up incorrectly, but it was, and it felt really existential. And I'll say, you know, we focus a lot about what's going on on AML in the US, but it's a big question everywhere. Both in Europe, they have this very stringent um, AML regulation called the AMLR, and the Financial Action Task Force, or FATF, has been very, very focused on um, solutions for illicit finance in DeFi for a number of years at this point. So I think that's part of it too. Like, you know, I don't know, I, I think this is a very reasonable framework and solution, but I think we just, I think the feeling was we had to get something out there so that there was, a, as Michael said, there was a counterweight. Into the Bytecode is sponsored by Optimism. The Optimism Collective is building the open source modular software project known as the OP Stack, which allows developers to run layer two blockchains while also addressing key governance and economic challenges in the wider ecosystem. Optimism is also leading decentralized grants experiments, like retroactive public goods funding, which recently granted 10 million OP to projects across developer tooling, infrastructure, and education. More recently, they had a major milestone by adding Coinbase's blockchain base to also be governed by Optimism governance, and also contribute a portion of their sequencer revenues back to the collective. I've known the Optimism team for many years and know that they're dedicated to both scaling Ethereum and extending its ability to build better economic structures. So if you're interested in learning more, whether you want to build something new or you want to apply for grant funding, then I encourage you to check out Optimism at optimism.io. Well, I was saying to Michael before we jumped on that reading through the paper, I, I feel like it, it, you know, as someone, again, who doesn't have a super deep background in how regulation has been evolving, it just made sense to me from a first principles perspective. And um, so maybe, um, maybe I'll make an attempt at like describing what I understand you to be saying in this paper. And, and you can you can riff off of that and correct me. So you you kind of you kind of start by making this distinction between our is what we're talking about centralized, like is it CFI centralized finance? Is it DeFi decentralized finance and genuine DeFi by that? So there's a there's a smart contract running in this open network. And 
or is it uh, is it on-chain CFI, like a hybrid system where there is still a independent control person, um, i.e., like either some multi-sig or some place in the in the critical flow of this of this application uh, of this of this contract? You know, there is a server or a company that does something. And these are these are kind of fundamentally different cases when it comes to thinking about, um, you know, whether you know how the how regulation should apply and whether even a, a you know an intermediary exists in the first place. So so maybe I'll uh, maybe that's that's one piece of it. the The second piece is that you um, you talk about uh, you. You kind of again kind of outlined this distinction between financial applications and and you know information and and data infrastructure, and that if we kind of think about a blockchain, it's more akin to a you know to the internet and ISPs sending packets around and packet switching, and you know we don't go to you know all the server like dns servers and ask them to collect kyc information on the packet information because that's the wrong level of abstraction and so what we're talking about here are like information networks and um and then so and then maybe the third piece i'll say and i'll pause and i thought this was particularly interesting to me was that you kind of um you know there's if we if we look at a and you have a really nice graph of a DeFi transaction flow in this paper, which is, you know, this you you're a user, you go on a website, you press a button, wallet pops open, send the transaction through. What are all the things that happen before this thing ends up on a blockchain and this gets executed? And thinking about where, you know, what each of these parties can be can be you know genuinely thought to be responsible for in in a regulatory regime. And the place, you know, so, so I, my sense based on what you said was that there's the, there's, a, there's the kind of like blockchain itself, which like we said is, is this like information network. There's the, there's the user interface layer, which, you know, m may or may not be financially related, like, like what we were saying. And, and the parts that you kind of like hone in on as potentially being an interesting place to, to think about this question is where, you know, is, is uh, I think you call them critical communication uh, tra transmitters. transmitters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and basically uh, RPC nodes as a service. So Alchemy or Infura, like the, the transaction that you, that the thing that the party that you know actually has the transaction bundle and sends it into the blockchain network and they can do wallet risk scoring they can do reporting they can do all these sorts of things as 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 a as a kind of an information intermediary that's involved in this flow so that was that was a lot of words and i'm sure i i kind of like butchered key pieces of this but uh you can you can react and and say what comes to mind. No, I think that's a good distillation of really what it was trying to do. Um, look, the Michael and I did a talk to somebody a, a couple of weeks ago, and they were saying, well, you know, regulators keep saying same activity, same regulation. What's your response to that? And I thought about it for a second. I was like, that is this paper. 
right? This paper is really like we're treating like things alike. Um, and Michael can go into sort of what critical infrastructure and how it's treated today. Um, but like this isn't, I think we're not trying to do something so new or novel, right? Like finding intermediaries is a fair question and other regulators have sought to do it. Now they've sought to do it based on like there was a, an, a report uh, from an international regulator on DeFi and they were like, you have to find an intermediary no matter what, even if it's just a coder. It's like, well, no, that can't be the standard that we're abiding by. Like that's just not how we do things now. But if you want to find an intermediary of who's responsible, um, you know, we, we um, went off of the 2019 FinCEN guidance, which is how FinCEN's kind of been finding intermediaries um, all along, which is looking at the question of control. And um, look, it's a broad definition. And if we've gotten heat on anything from this paper, it's really how broad the definition is. And to your point, like mm. it could capture an emergency multi-sig. And should you, if you have really limited narrow powers, should you be an FI? And the paper doesn't say that, but I do think people sort of have read it in to say, well, if you're saying control and it's this broad, that's really the problem. Um, so I do think probably over time we can refine the, um, definition of control, although we really made it into a two-step analysis. Is there control? Okay, if yes, then what is the activity that is going on and what mm. type of control do you have, right? Like, I think if you're holding an emergency multi-sig, highly unlikely you're a financial institution, even for a DeFi protocol, right? Something mm -hmm. like that, because your activity is only to act in an emergency. Um, so I think there's that part of it. I, I think on the critical infrastructure point, that has existed since the late 90s, maybe, Michael, right? Yeah. Uh, there are 16 uh, economic sectors that are thought of as critical in the U.S., but and Michael does a fun job of talking about, like, uh, trains and um, healthcare and stuff like that. Um, and... Um, and so we know how to treat the network's underlying financial services to date. Uh, yeah. And then I think the last piece, as you said, is the critical communications transmitters. And as you were talking about it, that's probably the one place where we don't treat like things alike. Uh, we're certainly not trying to make them financial institutions. But I do think there's there was an acknowledgement of like, they're not just going to take the first two parts of, you know, I, I think just looking at the first two parts of this framework. Um, and if you're really looking to meet the uh, goals of the Bank Secrecy Act in a way that promotes uh, law enforcement's abilities to go after bad guys, this is what we thought was sort of the lightest touch while still really trying to stay true to what the financial integrity regime in the U.S. says. OK, mm -hmm. now Michael's going to say everything I got wrong on that. <laughs> it's all not surprisingly it's all right i i don't i, I don't even think i have anything to add um I, the, in fact the only thing i would underline in there is rebecca made a really important point about prevention and and i think part of this shift away from sort of a bank secrecy act approach for these siloed banks where the fbi is coming in they they think there's a crime is either happening or probably already happened at least as in the genesis of it and they need your reports because they're investigating this crime that it, for which there's a victim. And I think a lot of and and you know and, and a lot of the development of the Bank Secrecy Act away from rec records into just reporting it was in a way of like okay this is suspicious before a crime maybe we can prevent it. And so our focus though was much more the prevention side in a cybersecurity sense where we've already been doing the prevention side for years and years and years. 
and it wasn't based on on KYCing who the the owner of a packet <laughs> that's being switched um, because that wasn't that, that wasn't likely to get you to prevent anything. Um, I mean, sure, if you chase down every single packet that was ever switched, you could probably scare everyone to death <laughs> about that's just the total surveillance. And maybe, maybe you could, you know, people would stop chewing gum in public and all kinds of stuff. But I think the idea here was in the cyberspace, we don't do that, but we still prevent a lot of stuff because it's based on threat indicators around activity, which are hard to spoof and which are sometimes predictive of an exploit that's about to happen a smart contracts loading up before you know like forta does and and sardine and all these others where they're preventing things based on activity that doesn't matter it doesn't matter who it is or, or whatever we just want to prevent the victim from from happening and i think that was very much a driving force around this including the way we looked at the way critical infrastructure is protected in that when lazarus forget about whether they're sanctioned or not if they're about to attack the financial infrastructure backbone, nobody's like, well, we better get their passport numbers to, you know, to verify this. Or, okay, we have to get their passport numbers because we might later want to prosecute them. You're never going to extradite somebody from North Korea to the U.S. It's about preventing it from the beginning. And so that this a lot of this was like, let's let's prevent victims. We can focus on avenging later if we need to. But let's do it. Let's prevent victims as much as possible. And by the way, government, you're already doing this really, really well in the critical infrastructure sector, um, whether it's communications or dams or defense industrial supply chains um, or financial infrastructure. And, and the way they're doing that is not by defining who can participate in information sharing around trends and typologies and threats as a financial institution. It's just, do you have relevance to this critical infrastructure? And if you do, we want to be able to share information about threats that we're seeing with you and aggregate them across that we're hearing from others and get them to you so that we can prevent the next DDoS attack or whatever it's or right. exploit. Um, just, and we don't just care whether Lazarus point. is on the effect list. Right. Yeah, just having a touch, touch point with doesn't doesn't necess, doesn't, you know, doesn't imply that there's some crazy regulatory thing that you need to go through. It it might just mean that it's helpful to share information mm -hmm. and that, you know, there. Yeah. Like national security has has better information on pending hacks that they want to disseminate to to organizations that might be impacted by it. Yeah. And if you and if the gating function for that is that you are a financial institution to begin with, you're excluding Cisco routing people that might have one really inf relevant information themselves because they're trying to keep the infrastructure safe too, um, and people that might be able to do something. And so if, if the answer is like, well, we can only we can only give you this information or get information if you're custodying asset, assets, like you're self-limiting to a degree that the government has already decided for decades is not is not the best way to do it. And so we're partly just saying, like, you're right already. You're just not using the thing that you're right about um, in the right spot. Look, the, I think the other piece is I'm going to say the quiet part out loud. Um, but I think the audience for this podcast will appreciate and acknowledge it, which is 
regulators and policymakers are inherently, whether they admit it or not, are inherently fearful of this technology because it takes the existing system and sort of blows it apart. And I feel comfortable saying it because a foreign policymaker literally said it to me earlier this week, which is, yeah, most, and especially he was very, very young. Um, so he was sort of like, I get this, this is great, right? And he was like, but the people above me, and again, this is somebody outside the United States, but you know, people above me really I mean, don't that's, get it. I mean, that's the feeling I had reading the paper also, which was like, holy crap, there's a lot of terminology and complexity. It's like, even if it's, even if like a, you know, software engineer trying to get into crypto, they need like a six month, you know, boot camp to, to figure out what's going on. I mean, we have done ourselves zero favors in the crypto space, even like we should have never talked about a lot of this this way, because when we're saying like blockchains are just the new internet, it's like, yes, that is literally what they are. But I think there was just so much fueling around the speculation and around DeFi. And, you know, I just think the even calling evolved. these things wallets, right? Rather 100%. than just like worst, worst, <laughs> yeah. worst, worst, yeah, smart contracts. I literally, I, I had to explain to somebody at a bank once, like, no, it's not a real contract. It's just like an auto piece of software. They're like, okay, but but who's on the other side of it? I'm like, no, no one. And they're like, but who signs it? I'm like, oh, no one. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's just forget about this whole thing. Yeah, yeah. So, so maybe, maybe um, one one question that might help me kind of be able to better visualize this. Let's say we're ten years in the future, and this uh, this framework that you're talking about through you know the natural evolution and the iteration that's going to happen on it evolves. And now we're kind of looking at the this you know DeFi transaction flow of mm -hmm. a you know of all the parties that are involved from a user going on a website to this transaction landing on Ethereum. Um, how you know what would that world look like? Who what who's complying with what regulation? What are they you know what are they doing? Um, what do you see there? In well, in, in the good case where where what we want happens. Well, let's use a Uniswap V2 contracts, right? Yeah. Which we know are totally autonomous, no admin key. Um, I would yeah, say no system totally. control person, great. And I would talk about app.uniswap.org, right? I'm just using things we all know about and how totally. it functions today. No app.uniswap.org, no off-chain routing, things like that. Um, fine, they may take some fees, but it's just like on um, sort of other assets and I don't think that makes you a system. I don't think actually I, I think I answered a question like this on Twitter. Like I don't think fees make you a system control person alone. Like there are plenty of people who take fees on the internet and have no control over anything because they're just providing a service. Um, and that the rest of the inf I'm I'm a lawyer, so I'm going to give you like every assumption that has to underlie my answer because <laughs> uh, I don't want it to ever be used against me. Uh, and that everything, you know, Ethereum is operating exactly as it exists today, um, and everything else is too. I think it should be as seamless as it is today, if not better, right? Like the UX should be a little bit better, and you don't see anything happen. Now, if I was involved in a hack. Uh, and I had hacked another protocol and the funds are in my wallet and I tried to transact through Uniswap. Um, either, I don't know what will happen from a long-term perspective, but we know from the terms of use and public things about Uniswap, they do wallet monitoring. If it was terrorist financing, I'd probably get blocked off of their 
a site. But if I had just hacked something and I'm not associated with terrorist financing, I'm just like kind of a bad actor, I would still get blocked over, right? We think about blockchain transactions in terms of liveness and finality. I would only get to the RPC and I'd get blocked off because I had hacked funds in my wallet. My wallet risk score would probably be very, very high, right? Like, I don't know, eight or a nine. The RPC nodes would be feeding in the information to say, oh, these bad wallets, no. Um, but I would just get blocked. And that's all I'd see as a user. And then what would happen if this all was, you know, implemented in real time is there'd be a report that gets sends, sent by, let's say, an alchemy auto send, right? They don't have to generate it. They don't have to do a look back for a number of days. Um, they'd automate a report getting sent to FinCEN that has like transaction hash, wallet address, maybe time, I don't know, and something else. It's almost, it it's almost like these, the movies where you see like a video camera of like a, you know, wanted person and, you know, goes, goes distributed out. It's like this wallet that's associated with this hack was just trying to send a transaction on Uniswap and like, instantly goes out there yeah i mean trm labs has done some great work and a just a public resource of chain abuse that's yeah. a it's a good example of people just are able to contribute hey this this wallet just was involved in a hack you know alert to everybody it's not a it's not an ofac list it's a this is not a political decision the whole point of this is it's cybersecurity. And so, and this is where there is like such an opportunity for alignment. It doesn't have to be about, okay, this jurisdiction thinks that you shouldn't do this. And this jurisdiction thinks something completely different in this global communications infrastructure. It's like it is now, if there's a threat hacking the global infrastructure, there's actually quite a lot of alignment that we don't want that to happen. And let's get risk indicators out there. And it's not about uh, you're in trouble if you don't do it. It's like, actually, no, we all don't want it to happen. <laughs> and yeah. so rather than wait for Lazarus Group to go through the process of being putting a legal package together that goes through the OFAC clearance process and finally gets put on a list, we actually just want it to happen right away where other pe a bunch of people have said, actually, I don't know what group this is or if it's even a group or who's behind it. I just don't care. It's a threat. We're not going to wait till we get that attribution. We're going to put a pause right now so that we can figure out what's happening before there are more victims. Um, and it's not a sort of summary execution either. Like it could be lifted in the way that like chain abuse totally. alerts get out there and people are like, hey, be careful. Um, and you make decisions. And so and, and I think the, the position we would proposed for for folks in national security is like this means we get lazarus before you guys figure out that this attacker is lazarus um and that's a whole right. issue like it, it was an issue at chainalysis when i was there it was an issue when i was at ofac like you would it, i mean we had this with russian organized crime all the time there would be groups of russian organized crime that were designated um, for 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 being specific or in Mexican cartels as well. Like whether you we, do we really wait some guys there like literally beheading people, and and we're not going to wait to figure out like Bank of America to say well OFAC hasn't determined is it Sinaloa or Zetas, <laughs> um, or what right. if it's a group that's not designated? I mean, which literally there there would be debates within the law enforcement community of like you guys are right. calling this. Um, you know, the CNJ or whatever, 
but we're not sure that that's really a group that's just an unaffiliated group of opportunists. And so while that conversation's happening in the national security space of like, is there such a thing as brother's circle in Russia, or is it just thieves and laws that get together opportunistically? Well, we don't want to wait for that conversation to happen. I understand why it has to happen for banking reasons, but in the cybersecurity space, I don't care whether this person's part of Lazarus or Zetas or whoever, like they're attacking something. We want to, we want to, create a resilience and prevent victims. And so we're not going to get less. We're actually going to protect people more. But it's yeah. not it's not sort of a, a death sentence. It's like it's a pause. Yeah, I think the other piece of it is like we were really trying to index for effectiveness. And I, I was just going back to like, how would it work if my funds got blocked off from doing a transaction? But, you know, there have been all these concerns and there have been plenty of congressional hearings where they're like, well, the second Lazarus does it, they like shoot it out to a bunch of different wallets. And they might, and now you're done. If this kind of thing was implemented, you're done because you can't really do the wallet to wallet transaction anymore because you're starting to get blocked off. So you could, maybe you could do the hack, but then even if you spread it out to six different wallets right away, that's it, you're done. And I was listening, there is a podcast called The Lazarus Heist, um, which I'm very obsessed with. It's a BBC podcast, but and it's oh, not wow. just about um, crypto. <laughs> it, there are only two episodes about crypto, uh, but there are also ones, I actually find the ones about non-crypto Lazarus uh, Heist much scarier, like when they hacked into all of Warner Brothers. It just felt very creepy, but anyway. Um, but they talk about, even in the crypto ones, which are at the end of the second season, uh, that that Lazarus does have some funds or what they think is Lazarus just sitting and they can't move them because they're Lazarus mm -hmm. identified wallets very publicly. Like this, this now makes that much operational much, much faster and much sooner. And it's not only for things like sanctions, which is an important part of the financial integrity regime, but it does go to the BSA concept of like, no, we're just trying to catch bad actors generally, right? Not just sanctioned actors, but bad actors. And so it goes to this. And look, I think it will be complementary to what else goes on in the space, as Michael alluded to at the beginning of our conversation, right? The Security Alliance came out very formally, um, and they um, are a group of, they were informal white hats together for a very long time. And um, I think it's important, this group, that everybody listening to this podcast will know, but white hats is something that, as you alluded to, exists and has existed in web too, too, right? People who are just trying to thwart cyber attacks generally. Um, I actually think the white hat community in web three is probably more robust and better um, and actually super effective in what they've been doing in terms of front running exploits and things like that. And so they are they're also trying to formalize what people have been doing in this space and incentivize more people to be good actors and for there to be even greater effectiveness. So I think this is going to be a complementary process where we're all formalizing a number of different things to really get to the right result without shutting down the technology. Yeah, maybe talking a little bit more about the Security Alliance. So it goes by SEAL, right? And this is what mm -hmm. Samsung announced uh, yesterday or two days ago. Yeah. So what it seemed like there's a there's a kind of meaningful legal component to it as well to allow these white hats to do their work. What? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What does that involve? 
Oh, yeah. So in addition to sort of announcing SEAL as a formal entity, um, and as I said, they were they were doing all this type of work, you know, since the Nomad attack, at least uh, in sort of informal telegram groups and the like. Um, but this is now a formal entity. And they also at the same time, through a lot of work of other lawyers, not myself, um, other lawyers, uh, other white hats, um, you know, software developers and things like that put together something called the White Hat Safe Harbor Agreement. And it's for DevCos, foundations, and whomever to adopt this agreement and say we're abiding by it. And what it really does is it lays out if, you, if you're a white hat and you follow certain steps um, in preventing an exploit, we, the DevCo, and on behalf of the users, will not go after you for what's called civil liability, right? Like, we won't say you were trying to steal stuff from us. We won't um, really say, you know, you're a malicious actor. Um, and, you know, as we all sort of know, and as we've seen, sometimes in the middle of an exploit, somebody will say, like, I can front run this attack, but I really don't want you to come after me. And DevCo's or foundations or whoever sort of is seen as the steward has to make a decision, like, can I even agree? to that in the moment and you're dealing with much you know scarier things can you front run so this takes that level of decision out of it uh, really and look, not every protocol is necessarily going to do it so there's that piece to it and then it requires um protocols where the steward has sort of adopted the white hat safe harbor to establish asset recovery addresses where the funds from an ex from a front run exploit by a white hat can get returned uh, and be seen so that everybody has, you know, you can't, you don't have to spin up a new wallet or whatever. It's like everybody knows if you've returned it to this wallet, you're a good actor. Um, and somebody has also asked this week, like, well, you can't insulate me from criminal liability. So even if I'm a white hat and I front run an exploit and I return it to the asset recovery address, um, I could still get pursued by law enforcement. And Michael may, you know, be able to speak about this even more in depth just from his experience. But I think what law enforcement is trying to do with all of these is just make users whole and get in touch with the people who can actually fix the system. And so if you already have this agreement that designates that person who acted that way is a good actor and they've returned it to this address, no, it doesn't mean you'll never get pursued by law enforcement, but I certainly think it takes the, the likelihood that you would down by a lot. But what are your thoughts on that, Michael? Oh yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I, I actually spend a fair amount of time um, or have over the, over the, the years with FBI folks that are addressing these hacks. And, and I'll say like in every instance, it's been, we're just looking, we're looking to help victims or we're looking for witnesses. We're not here to try to pin something on anybody. We just, the first overwhelming priority is, is helping victims and making them whole again. And, and most of the time it's actually, how can we get as fast as we can to a technical person who can help us understand how the exploit happened and where it might go and where there might be information that can help us figure out where the money went, like by far. Like nobody's like, are you a broker dealer? Like we're looking for broker dealers. Like who's a broker dealer? Like they can tell us about this or like, you know, are you Does doing everyone custody? everyone in law enforcement have that voice? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that <is> the, <laughs> that's the- Sorry, well, go ahead. I want to get it back. Uh, I feel like I'm missing out on how fun this world is. No, no, no. That was my Gary Gensler. I'm sorry. Uh, 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 voice. Um, but no, but for real, like the, the law enforcement is like they don't want to be preoccupied with that stuff. Like they just want to find out how can we help people? Who's the right person? 
if it's somebody who's a white hat, great. Like it doesn't matter. Like we don't need you to be a financial institution where you are the registered agent that did something or whatever. Like we actually just need whoever it is that can help us understand. Was there a, is there a a read message that went to an RPC instead of a send message? And that one might have an IP address that can help us get to, to a device ID that can help us like help people. Uh, It's not a, it's not a, did you meet a multi-factor test for, for custody or something like that? So, I mean, in this sense, like this is on many levels, exactly what they're looking for is this touch point, which, which Sina, you touched, you caught right away when we were talking about earlier about how critical infrastructure gets treated right now. Like they're just looking for touch points. Um, And I think that's, that's partly why I think the, the security alliance and seal initiative are so important because it's, it's industry saying we are aligned on managing risk and we want to be helpful about it. Um, and that's, I mean, if we do this right, the FBI people who are really trying to help victims and the industry folks who are really trying to help victims can just get together and all the noise that's happening around them, we, we sort of crowd it out. Yeah. And I think the SEAL team has already been in touch with law enforcement generally to just sort of, I, I don't know specifically who, but I'm sure the FBI and some others to sort of say, look, this is out there. This is coming to fruition. I will say, I know some of the white hats who were part of this unofficially, and they always would come to me be like, is there anyone from the FBI we can just have in our Telegram group? Yeah, because, yeah. because as the, the exploits are happening in real time, we don't always think, or it's very hard to get in touch with someone from the FBI. So we'd rather just have like the right person in our Telegram group, I don't, I don't know if that ever really happened, but you know, I think the good actors in this space and law enforcement are actually totally aligned. And for everybody in this space who wants to build effectively, nobody wants these exploits. N- nobody. Right. Michael, could you see a world where they're in the Telegram chats? Are they? Are they? Are they down with that? I think it's yeah. I think it's possible. I mean, there, there's a <laughs> for sure. I mean, I think there's um, you know, there's already something called the. NCFTA, the National Cyber Forensic Training Alliance, um, which sounds like it's around training, but it's actually not. <laughs> it's a very, I mean, it does some, but it's really much more operational. I think it's based at Carnegie Mellon, um, in part just from sponsorship to, to help get it set up. But it's it's a public-private partnership around cybersecurity where you have like the Microsoft uh, cyber folks, the Google Cloud folks, Amazon Cloud folks, all these cybersecurity, prof- the Cisco people potentially, like Cloudflare. Again, you don't have to be a bank to be in it. It's just infrastructure um, co-located with FBI, Secret Service, um, you know, all these sort of cybersecurity professionals where they're real-time doing what now people do in a Telegram group. Um, and obviously they're not, it's not just the people that sit there, they're networked through their agencies and their, and their companies to share this stuff. But it, that that's, I mean, this is again, why I think getting out of the financial institution, like, oh, you have 30 days to right. file a SAR after a thing happened into the cyber infrastructure space where we we're already doing this and solving it, which is, Hey, this needs to be a real time communication network like the NCFTA and like the ISACs and, and the others that, that do the information um, information sharing and analysis centers for critical infrastructure that are already happening in the financial infrastructure space. It's moving it to the real time, let's just coordinate. And I, and I could very much see um, 
FBI, you know, I'm sure it's like a, it's going to have to be an account that's audited or something for their own, their own rules. Um, but like, I could very much see that happening. It's like the mm-hmm. FBI alert bot. Although yeah. listening to Michael and just the questions you're asking, Cedar, I'm making like all my little neurons fire towards each other because, you know, when we talked about the Office of uh, Cybersecurity and Critical Infrastructure Protection or OSIP in Treasury, that oversees um, the financial services critical infrastructure. And there's a huge public-private partnership that Michael loves to talk about, so I don't want to take away from him, called the FSISAC, which is an information sharing group. And now you're talking about the NCFTA, which is another private partner, um, public-private partnership where there's all this information sharing um, and not to be sort of the, you know, subversive industry person on here, but I think we're missing out. And I think we're now, and now there are enough great government folks who really get the tech and what it does. And like great credit to Michael for having been in the government and continuing to li- li- liaise with all of his former colleagues. And there are tons of former both government and national security folks who have really been instrumental um, in talking to current government officials. But the public-private partnerships and treating all of this like internet, you know, communication infrastructure is going to move things forward in a way that is much more productive than trying to tell validators and miners that they should KYC every everyone because that's just not even feasible in so many different ways and file CTRs and other you know kinds of things. And so I do think that the, especially in the U.S., the regulatory approach to crypto has has created this huge divide and both like fear on both sides. And then with when both sides are fearful, there is just hus- natural hostility, right? If you think about like how people relate to each other, um, mm-hmm. that has prevented the public and private partnerships to date. And so I think we are finally getting over that hump with things like SEAL and what Mike and I are talking about. And there is actually a crypto ISAC initiative. And so I think if we can push all of that forward so that we work with the government, we actually will move things forward in a way that's, you know, not is everyone a broker dealer? How was that? Was that, that was a perfect Gary. Uh, <laughs> Gary, we're just kidding. It's not, this is parody. That was, I was just parodying you. I oh, wasn't parodying wow. anyone yeah, in you're, you're, you were the, you were the true intermediary, Michael. Uh, oh, so, <laughs> and he just uh, called me a financial institution. <laughs> Yeah. Not all intermediaries Not, is, are financial institutions. That's right. You of all people yeah. should know that. Actually, that's right. Thank you. See, this was yeah. a teaching moment. Thank you, Sina. You're a cyber <laughs> infrastructure. That's right. Um, I'm just a packet switcher. Yeah, that all makes sense. So maybe for me to kind of try to synthesize and, and wrap some of what we've said. So this, you know, um, I mean, there, there's a lot we've said. Maybe going back to the thrust of the paper we're really shifting from finite, these are financial institutions to this is cyber infrastructure. Thinking about that, you know, you're on the Uniswap app flow. There's points, you know, there, there's the there's an application, which is a, you know, product run by a company based in the United States. And then there's a protocol, which is genuine DeFi running on this blo- open blockchain network as infrastructure. And um, the, the protocol, you know, may, may be kind of seen as critical infrastructure, which all that means is that there's kind of touch points between the government and various organizations that are that that interface with this protocol for information dissemination. And it, it doesn't mean that the protocol itself needs to be contorted in any way to to fit some regulation. It's really like informing people of there's, you know, there's the chance of this big hack. So I think that to me 
makes makes sense and preserves the neutrality of the protocol. And then the product itself, uh, you know, obviously being based in the U.S. wants to comply with these regulations. And whether that's the, the website itself kind of having an OFAC block list or, you know, when the transaction is sent to Infura or Alchemy, them doing wallet risk scoring and, and real-time reports, all of that stuff also makes sense to me. I mean, it's, it's like if, if you want a sensible way to think about which one of these parties need to do what um, and, and to actually prevent, from, prevent bad things from happening, uh, that to me makes a lot of sense. That seems good. I mean, that seems that's, right. Like, that's I think, good. Great. No, I mean, I mean we're done. I, like, this is part of, I mean, I think that's partly why we've tried to have as many conversations before and after putting the paper out because things that yeah. make sense to us, you know, we're not engineers. Rebecca's pretty close to being an engineer and super lawyer. Um, no. But like, everybody sees different things. Yeah, you things. were saying soundness on finality. That's pretty deep in there oh trust me rebecca this is this is why i don't remember even how i met rebecca i just suddenly i was writing a 45 page paper with her because she's such a force she was like i think i think over the break i'm gonna just learn the bsa and like next thing you know she's like so 6414a i'm looking at this and i'm like i don't even know what that is like i was like literally so maybe i i did have a couple kind of more personal questions for oh. us to end on and just okay. on the fun side but um why are you doing all this? Like, what, what, what about this captures your imagination, excites you as people, resonates with you? Um, how do you think about the work that you're doing? Hmm. Michael, do you want to start? Just because you have the agentic stuff with X A N T. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. I mean, I think this resonates with, on some level, just sort of puts together the public sector and the private sector work I've been doing, which is. How do we prevent exploitation and empower people at the same time, including, by the way, empower them to prevent themselves from being exploited, which was very much something that that throughout law enforcement we wanted. Like FinCEN is never out there thinking, geez, I wish I had more enforcement cases. Uh, and it, when you're a prosecutor, it was never I wish I just had more cases to do. It was like we have more than enough work, like we are overemployed. What I'd much rather do, especially when you spend time face to face with victims of these crimes, is prevent them. And I think this is a, a pretty incredible opportunity with this technology, again, to have technical solutions to policy issues so that it's, it's a bit more resilient, that we, can, we, could, get the, we could actually get this right. Um, but I think we have to shift the conversation. And so this was an opportunity to help do that um, and hopefully at least start the conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think that when you're in a position, so I'll I'll tell a super cheesy story, but I was down in D.C. maybe a year ago at this point, uh, maybe nine months ago or something, and I was going for meetings on the Hill. I don't even remember what was going on. And I reached out to a dev that I'm very close to, a product person, and said, like, you know, what do you, what do you hope that I can convey today? Um, if there's, like, one thing I could really get across. And he was like, tell them we just want to code. <laughs> And I thought, one, on the one hand, God, that's so sad. Like, are we really in a place in life where we can't do that anymore? And then I thought on the flip side, well, in the U.S. in particular, 
How lucky am I that I literally have access to be able to go talk to people who make decisions and advocate for something that I believe in? And so I do think the ability to innovate in the U.S. is a particular freedom. And so I think putting this forward and sitting in a position of privilege, me with great power comes great responsibility, right? Like, um, I think this paper is like a Spider-Man moment where like, it was really hard. I said to somebody like, I think I'd rather give birth again than have to write this all over. <laughs> but but now that we've done it, um, it feels like, you know, it's changed the conversation for some. Michael's heard from a lot of his, uh, you know, government folks on it, that it has really at least made people stop for a second. I've had meetings on the Hill where people really at least engaged with it as a real concept. And so, um, yeah, I just want people to be able to create cool things. I, you know, I'm a lawyer now, so it's kind of boring, but I was an artist for a very long time um, when I was young. And I just want people to be able to create. And I also sort of as alluded to, I have kids and for better or worse, and look, in some ways worse, tech is their future. And it is something that they are really, really tied to. And so I want the tech to be better than it is today, or at least have people have the opportunity to make it better. And I do share a lot of the same ideals that Michael has that um, I think this will make people, I think this could make the world better for so many people, more accessible, less dangerous from, you know, even data hacks and things like that. Um, but uh, I think there's just a lot of opportunity here. And I think, as I said, if you're sitting in a position of privilege and you at least have the ideas and the resources to put them out, then it's incumbent on you to do it in a way that can be heard. Mm -hmm. Very well said. And and maybe one one last question for both for me personally, but other maybe technical folks who are listening who want to kind of just be more involved, mm. um, either to at least understand what's going on at a deeper level or to actually like get involved and contribute to these discussions, what would you recommend? Oh, Sina, you teed it up for me. So one of the things that I um, pioneered along with a few other people is something called the Crypto Policy Bootcamp, where we run these, and Michael spoke at the first one in DC, we run these small 25-person um, sort of three-quarter day events where you get to hear about the state of crypto policy wherever you are, um, how to engage uh, on crypto policy matters, and then also usually like why it matters or something else, like um, a particularly like how to talk about your narrative or whatever. Um, so we did one in D.C., one in New York. We're doing one in Paris for EU policy, one in the U.K., and then we'll be doing a few at Consensus, actually, because uh, we feel like there will be a lot of people there who want to engage. But you can also reach out. Um, I'm happy to talk to anybody at any time about how to engage. You can reach out at policy at polygon.technology, um, and I'm also on social media. Um, but I will say the thing I've been talking about a lot is like policy in this space is going to take a village and to just go back to what we were saying, convey what's really going on, not using words like wallet or smart contract, but really make it very clear what's happening is um, a special skill. And I think a lot of the people who haven't been engaging to date actually have it uh, and we should be leveraging it more. Amazing. Well, yeah, thank, thank you both for taking the time. It's been super fun to jam. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Sina. This is awesome. Really helpful. Hey, I'm going to make a small ask here. If you've been listening to these conversations and want to support what we're doing here, I would really, really appreciate if you could leave a rating and a review for the podcast wherever you're listening to it. This might seem like a small thing, but it will really help other people also discover the show. 
Thank you. I'm grateful to be able to do this and look forward to being here together again soon.